from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. As conflict escalates in Ukraine, governments around the world have voiced their opinions and condemnations. But what do Ukrainians think? We'll hear from a professor who's asked them. Then, at age 94, Gwen Scott has seen a lot. She taught U.S. history in the Denver Public Schools, then became interested in the impact past presidents have had on black Americans. Johnson is the only president that directed most of his administration to try to right the wrongs that went against black people all these years. And later, turning Stephen King's classic, The Shining, into an opera. Nothing is better for a thriller than the abstract art form of music, because thrillers represent the unknown. Hi, I'm Micah, and I'm a member of CPR's Legacy Circle. When I was drafting my will, I thought about CPR almost immediately, because it's been over a decade at least since I've been listening to either indie or the news, and I wanted that to continue for my daughter and other future generations. Like I don't want something like CPR or NPR as a whole to disappear. Learn about CPR's Legacy Circle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Russia has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Airstrikes hit several cities in the country, and people began fleeing those areas. Long lines of cars streamed out of the capital, Kyiv. President Joe Biden called it an unprovoked attack, and the U.S. has imposed initial sanctions on Russia, including ones targeting large financial institutions. John O'Loughlin is a professor of distinction at the University of Colorado Boulder and has worked in Ukraine. He's also done extensive polling of residents throughout the country, including in the breakaway regions in the southern and eastern parts of the country. John, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning. People are fleeing the country. Military strikes are expected to escalate. What are your biggest fears going forward? Oh, well, the, um, the worst case scenario, which I suppose is what you're asking, uh, would be that... Um, the current invasion would um, be met with very strong resistance uh, from Ukrainians, which I, I think I expect um, that the uh, war would drag out. Um, I know some people are hoping that it's sort of an Afghanistan quagmire situation for Russia, which of course doesn't take into account the uh, suffering inflicted on the Ukrainians caught in the middle. Um, I think there's a chance, I hope I'm wrong, that NATO could be more directly involved. And uh, Putin's speech last night or, or this morning in Russia was a, a very scary one, um, where he, I think, essentially threatened uh, nuclear retaliation with those who um, try and stop him. Um, so that was the kind of worst case scenario. And then what about a refugee crisis? It's winter time. Where will everybody go? Um, the undoubtedly head to Poland um, and to the other bordering countries uh, in the West. So that would be um, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, uh, that region. Um, so, But I think Poland would get the bulk of the refugees. 
Now, there's upheaval throughout the country now, but the current area of contention is the Donbass region in the eastern part of the country. There are two breakaway areas which Russian President Putin recognized as independent this week. Why is this all happening now? Um, well, there's the best way to think about it is sort of like uh, Russian matryoshka dolls, you know, the ones that you open one and then there's another doll underneath and then you know, all the way down. So at the very, the, the inside doll um, is the Donbass. Um, and there, uh, for the past eight years, there's been a, a low-level conflict uh, between the separatists supported by Russia with, you know, periodically Russian troops, certainly Russian advisors and officers helping them. And then on the other side, the Kiev government controlling um, across the line of contact. And what Putin did on Monday, uh, recognizing these republics, is uh, part of a much bigger, um, kind of a larger doll in a sense, which is, of course, the relations between Russia and Ukraine. So the, and then of course, within that is the bigger relations between Russia and the West, NATO, the US and so on. So the situation in Donbass um, has been unresolved in a sense. Um, it was, you know, daily sniping and shelling across the line, but never um, threatened to explode into a full-scale war until uh, very recently. Um, but I think it was sort of a, a pawn in the uh, Russian uh, Putin's plans for Ukraine, which more broadly was about, um, I, I'm trying to think the best way of, to think of uh, what Putin wants in Ukraine. And I think the best way to think of it is he wants another Belarus, which is kind of a client state, um, completely linked to Russia, completely dependent on Russia. And, uh, you know, I thought for a long time that the conflict would be confined to Donbass and to the area um, that the separatists don't control in the rest of the oblasts that are there in uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Mm -hmm. But it's clear now that the plan is to um, try and install a client regime in Kiev and, um, you know, another sort of Lukashenko character, uh, the um, president of Belarus, and try and make... Uh, Ukraine, uh, a country dependent on Russia in every respect. As we said, you've done extensive polling in the country, including one of the Donbass region a couple of weeks ago. It's certainly right. hard to get a full read of what people think. Um, but what was your general finding? Um, I think the most important finding was the one um, that we saw very clearly, not just in this um, poll that we did uh, a couple of, that just finished a couple of weeks ago. And we had, you know, 4,000 respondents in this poll, which is enormous because if you think about a, a US national poll usually has about 1,600 respondents. So we had 4,000 in this uh, small area. Mm. And I think the most dramatic finding, which repeats one that we saw a year and a half ago when we also polled in the Donbass, was that the majority of people agreed with a sentiment that they don't care uh, under which flag they live, uh, in which country they live in, that is Russia, Ukraine. What they care more about is to have a decent salary and then a decent pension. This was a famous quote from a, a young woman in the region. And so we asked uh, respondents to, do you agree with this or disagree with it? And those who agree with it obviously uh, want to um, make a preference for their own uh, well-being, their safety, their um, income, that sort of thing. Those who disagreed with the statement uh, care about which country they live in. And um, as I said, more than half of the respondents agreed that income, 
and family welfare is more important than where they live. What does that say about the government's response and, you know, what they will do? Um, well, Ukraine? I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, I think the, the, the bigger picture, which should be no surprise, is that uh, the poor people caught in the middle, um, you know, don't care as much about the big geopolitical uh, questions, um, the big military uh, questions that are front and center today. Um, they're trying to, in a sense, um, in a poor area, by the way, uh, we found that uh, 40% of the respondents said they could not afford food or they could only afford food and nothing else, which is the usual measure I use of poverty in the former Soviet Union. So it's a very poor area. And so people are, um, you know, desperate for uh, stability in their lives, um, obviously, Many of them are displaced persons uh, from the uh, separatist republics that went to the other side of the line in Kiev. Um, the, um, the perception of the government in Kiev was one that it had sort of abandoned them or at least wasn't paying very much attention to them. And so um, they actually had less support for the government in Kiev than the people on the other side of the line who had um, actually more trust and support for their own separatist uh, regime. So again, that's a bit of a, a shocker if you if you think about it, um, but not terribly surprising given the fact that Kiev has been very much focused on other questions and and sort of ignored uh, the people in the Donbas. It sounds like over the last month or so, um, some folks were preparing for this in. Ukraine, but others kind of took a lackadaisical approach. They didn't think that was going to happen. Um, what do you think of that? You mean, are you referring to the Kiev government? Yes, uh, uh, actually yeah. the people there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think a, a lot of uh, commentators made the point that they were sort of living in cloud cuckoo land and not recognizing the scale of the military buildup on their borders. Um, you know, the, this has been going on for over two months now, the, the, the large-scale buildup and the, the um, fast numbers of troops and equipment brought from, you know, eastern Siberia, you know, across the nine or ten time zones to uh, the border of Ukraine suggested that this was a serious business. And, and I think the government in Ukraine was uh, trying to convince people that um, they should not panic, they should not flee, they should carry on their lives as if uh, nothing was going on just, you know, on the edge of their country. And obviously that sort of backfired because um, now people are fleeing in huge numbers and have been, in a sense, caught unawares by the scale of the attack. So I think, uh, you know, I, I can understand why the government was trying not to uh, induce panic, both in terms of the population, but also in terms of financial markets and investments and so on. But in a way, it was rather foolish in hindsight. Do you think Ukrainians will rally to defend the country right now, given the economic troubles that folks are having in their priorities? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we asked that question actually in the Donbass, um, because the in, in Ukraine there have been a couple of surveys that showed, you know, twenty-five to thirty percent of respondents were ready to take up arms and, and defend the country, and I, and I sort of thought that's. That seems extreme to me um, because, you know, obviously more than half of the respondents are women. Um, a, a lot of people are relatively old and so on. And, and, and we asked the same question in the Donbass and we found actually it's less than 5% who would take up arms and defend. Uh, and this is the area most affected by the ongoing conflict. And, you know, there definitely is a more um, 
how should we say, stronger uh, Ukrainian nationalist sentiment uh, in the west of the country, and you would expect more people to take up arms there. But I always thought that that ratio of a quarter to a third who take up arms and fight was was exaggerated. Hmm. We've seen the stock market tank uh, today. Oil prices are rising fast. How will all of this affect Europe and even the U.S.? Um, it'll, uh, I think, very very direct effect on Europe. Most uh, immediately, um, the knock-on effects um, will probably be felt in the U.S. a little bit later. So the biggest um, weapon in terms of uh, foreign policy that Putin has, obviously besides a very large military and an enormous uh, nuclear arsenal, is in fact the uh, oil and gas. And the Russia is either the first or second with Saudi Arabia of um, oil exporters. And so if Russian oil exports are cut off, um, or it'll take a while maybe to redirect them to China or, or elsewhere if Western markets are cut off, then obviously there'll be a temporary hiccup in the oil markets internationally. So you would expect to see oil prices go up significantly. I think they've already hit $106 a barrel today. And um, some predictions are it'll go to $120, $130. So those prices will be passed on to uh, consumers uh, in, in the US. But most immediately is the uh, gas um, supply to Europe from Russia. Uh, many European countries, especially Germany, but there are others too, like Hungary and Latvia, Slovakia and so on, uh, where they have more than half of their uh, heating and um, gas uh, comes from Russia. So they, uh, if Russia were to respond mm -hmm. to the European sanctions, to the Western sanctions, with turning off the gas, then obviously there will be a major crisis in Europe. And obviously this is wintertime, and right. uh, it will be cold. Professor Lachlan, thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care. John O'Loughlin is a professor of distinction in geography at the University of Colorado Boulder and has worked in Ukraine. He's an expert in the political geography of the post-Soviet Union, and he's done extensive polling of residents throughout Ukraine, including the breakaway regions in the southern and southeastern part of the country. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver has an air pollution problem, and the world has a climate change problem. All those fancy new RTD trains should help fix that, right? If we really want to see a better city, a better world, we have to change. I'm Nathaniel Miner, host of CPR's new podcast, Ghost Train. In this show, I take a deep look at how transit could fix big issues our cities are facing, if we let it. Follow Ghost Train wherever you get your podcasts. Special coverage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine will continue as developments warrant. For now, we're going to take a moment to talk about some other things. President's Day, celebrated earlier this week, officially honors the nation's first president, George Washington. It also commemorates past U.S. presidents. One Denver historian views the nation's presidents through a unique lens. Gwen Scott will be 95 next month. She spent most of her career teaching U.S. history in the Denver public schools. Later, she became interested in the impact past presidents had on black Americans, and she co-wrote a text Book back in 2010 called Blacks Through the Eyes of Our American Presidents. That's eyes spelled A-Y-E-S. I visited her at her home in Denver to talk about the book, and we included the presidents who came after the book was published. Gwen, thanks for joining us. 
My pleasure. Let's talk about some of our presidents and their stance toward black people in America, ones that may have had a positive influence and others that have had a negative influence. And I want to start with our founding father, George Washington. Talk about his approach to black people during his presidency from 1789 to 1797. Well, George Washington was the prototype of racism. And so the first five presidents, they're all in the same uh, category, yet at the same time they were talking about all men are created equal and et cetera and et cetera. But when you see what documents they signed with the Constitution, black folks aren't even people or three-fifths of a person. So you take those first five presidents from uh, uh, Washington to Monroe, why you consider that they were not in black people's corner. And we should say that George Washington himself was a slave owner. Four of the five were slave owners. Adams was the only one that was not a slave owner. Moving on to our 16th president, and we're obviously just going to touch on a few presidents along the way. Abraham Lincoln has a controversial legacy. He's credited with ending slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. But you've said it's obviously more controversial than that, the idea that had he not been assassinated, his legacy might be quite different. Yes. uh, After all, when you think of the period of time that this was the formation of the country and uh, the attitude toward blacks was nothing more than their livestock, in my, I might add that Frederick Douglass is the one who was in there uh, that was instrumental in changing some of Lincoln's attitudes toward black people. And Frederick Douglass, uh, an activist who spoke, you know, throughout the states um, about emancipation and African American rights. Yes, yeah. But in the beginning, uh, when Lincoln took office, he talked about slavery was a part of the business, and, and he felt that there was no way in this country that whites and blacks could be together. In fact, the White Citizens Council used Lincoln's quotes in their propaganda. And talk about the controversy over Lincoln's legacy. You know, how many people have viewed him over time and how much of the view about him is changing. Well, once they understand what the Emancipation Proclamation said, the Emancipation Proclamation just simply said all slaves are free that are in the, uh, the states that had become a part of the Confederacy. Because Kentucky and Tennessee still had slavery, and so did Maryland and Delaware. But they were not in uh, the Confederacy. So they were free only because they were in the Confederacy. So he did not free the slaves. And he said he wasn't freeing the slaves. He was there to save the Union, which he did. So the Union was his priority, not emancipation. No, not at all. That was not it. And he matures quite a bit because he's the first president that allows a black person into the White House. And that's Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass has a a great deal of influence 
In fact, the last paragraph of the Emancipation Proclamation says he would even consider these blacks who fought for the, the Union to become citizens. And of course, that led to his assassination since uh, uh, Booth was sitting in the audience at the time when he made that proclamation. So that was the, the aegis for uh, John Wilkes Booth. He said, he's, no, they won't be citizens over his dead body. And so he made up his mind to assassinate him at that point. Booth, of course, Lincoln's assassin. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's impossible to predict what would have happened had Lincoln not been assassinated. But what do you see that might have changed that view of him as someone who was receptive to African Americans at the time? Well, it's hard to tell. It depends on who the historian is. <laughs> Plus the fact that you saw him grow what I'm, I'm thinking. He comes in as a, a man of his time when slavery is, is the, uh, the whole picture of American society. And there is another factor, though, in his coming up. His father was more of a slave driver, too, and there was a indication, supposedly somewhere in the reviewing of Lincoln's background, that he had a sympathy about slavery, because the way his father treated him like a slave. So this may have been part of the growth area in his reflection of his own life, and then to see those black people in that same condition forever. This may have been a part of the change in his uh, desire to be a little more humane about those people that are out there treated like livestock. Let's jump forward to the nation's 32nd president, Franklin Roosevelt, president from 1933 to 1945. He presided over World War II. How would you describe his legacy in terms of black Americans? There's another case. Black people, for the first time, got attention from the the White House. They were even naming their kids Roosevelt. Jackie Robinson's middle name is Jackie Roosevelt Robinson. And this is also the time that black voters are changing from the Republican Party to vote for the Democrats, because the Democrats were always those Southern Confederates. And uh, when uh, Roosevelt came into office, it happened to be that the country was in such array that most of the people were poor. So this is Depression time. So it was by default that black people were able to be there right at the same time to get some of the benefits of the New Deal. It was nothing directed directly for black people in the New Deal. He was not really in the corner of black people, but it was his wife. If it hadn't been for Eleanor, in fact, every time she would come in, he would ask her, what are your want now, Eleanor, and she would say so and so and so. So a lot of the things that were done for black people was because of Eleanor. And did Roosevelt own up to the fact that his wife was a huge influence on him? I don't think so. He was such an egoist. I don't think he gave Eleanor credit because she was really, she was the strength about humanity. And she could see the damage that was being done. Well, Second World War gives you a picture. This is time of Hitler, 
the time of the Japanese and Mussolini, those dictatorships. In Russia, then the communists were, are beginning to develop. So this is a fight for democracy at this point, and that's a big battle. So moving on to Kennedy and then Johnson, a Southerner who took over after John Kennedy was assassinated. Talk about their legacy. Well, there's another misconception about who's in your corner. When Martin Luther King was jailed in Birmingham, Coretta appealed to Kennedy to keep him from being sentenced to a... a, uh, I guess the period of time was supposed to be something like three to four or five months. And so she was very fearful if he went into one of those Georgia prisons that uh, he may not come out again. And so there was an appeal made to Kennedy, and so Kennedy did intercede. So Martin Luther King was released. But Kennedy was really not a real civil rights fighter at all. Can you give me an example of, of why he wasn't? Well, he had other things. He was, this was a time when you're trying to make America not get enchanted with communism. So this is that, that part of America. Although the uh, civil rights movement was beginning to really gain steam, Emmett Till becomes a symbol for black people to gather together and say, we're not going to take this stuff anymore. A boy who was murdered. In Mississippi, yes. And the year before was the Brown decision. Brown versus Board of Education. Yes, uh, which uh, nullified the Jim Crow segregation that ruled the United States. What you're saying is for Kennedy, civil rights was not necessarily his priority. Not at all. And talk about Johnson's legacy. He was a Southerner, of course. Johnson was a, he was not a wealthy man. He grew up as a poor Texan, and he had taught Mexican kids. He saw what poverty did there. And in Texas at that time, it was segregated, obviously, so he was not in a school with black people. But his grandfather was one of the people in Texas who fought against the Ku Klux Klan. So he had that in his background. But then, of course, when he was first in Congress as as a representative and then he becomes a senator, he's still in that whole Dixiecrat kind of uh, mentality. But as things go along and, and the country is beginning to see the damage that Jim Crow has done, plus the fact there is the television. So the people throughout the country can see What's going on with the brutalizing of black people? So as a true politician, you take advantage of what is out there to help to keep you in the power. But I do think that Johnson was sincere because he was persuading some of his, and Johnson was a Democrat. And those Democrats from the South, they were uh, dyed-in-the-wool black haters. So they, they were still in that Confederate mold. But Johnson was able to persuade some of them to see the, the wrong that was being done, and it was miraculous. Johnson was responsible for the voters' rights, fair housing. That is 
foremost on Johnson's Great Society hit list. So there are a lot of presidents in between, but I want to move forward to the nation's first black president. How do you view Barack Obama, his election, and what it meant for blacks in the U.S.? Well, when Barack Obama was elected, why black people couldn't believe it. In fact, I couldn't believe it. I never thought there would be a black president in my lifetime. There would be a white woman before a black man. But anyway, this phenomenon happened, and black people were ecstatic. But many black people were disappointed because when he went into office, that he didn't devote his administration to black problems. And he tried to explain, I'm the president of everybody, that he couldn't just concentrate and uh, do problem solving for only black people. As a black woman, how did you see, you know, his decision to to focus on the entire country and not just black citizens? Well, as I saw it, I could understand. But uh, many black people, they think this is the Messiah. And he's going to devote all his energies and his strength to be, <laughs> I guess he would, he would be uh, an ultra-modern uh, Lincoln in black skin, and it would free the, the black people, because blacks, were, at this time, they're just coming out from under Jim Crow. So their concern is that, at last, we're going to get everything we want, and we're going to get reparations, we'll get land, we'll get all these other kinds of things that were denied us black people throughout the years. But Barack Obama, his job was to govern for everybody. Yet, at the same time, he did a considerable amount in appointing black people in strategic positions, bringing uh, the information that allowed the health legislation to go through, which black people really profited from. And he also had a great influence on uh, black people voting. And in in those uh, southern states particularly, black people began to vote because they think, That was proof that Obama did, as our Messiah, (laughs) came to the rescue. Now, some people see Donald Trump's election as a backlash to a black president um, before him. Do you think Trump's election was partly racism rearing its head, white people not being happy with the fact that a black man was elected president? Well, it was just the consummation of what white people were thinking a long time ago, especially starting with uh, Richard Nixon. See, after Johnson, it's great society, and he begins to give black people their dues, their rights. Why then uh, one of the euphemisms that Nixon uses is middle America, which means this is white folks, and we're going to take back our country. What later becomes the mantra for uh, Donald Trump of taking America back. Of course, many see Trump sowing the deep seeds of racism in this country, particularly the Ku Klux Klan march in Charlottesville and what happened after that. Can you talk about Trump's response to that? Trump didn't sow the seeds. All he did is cultivate them and make them full-blown 
because Trump becomes their Pied Piper. And you notice that the Ku Klux Klan no longer comes out in, in robes and peaked hats. They are right out front. And uh, then all these other hate groups come out too. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, they are waiting in the wings to be released. And when Trump says the right things, he's their guy. And Trump has a record. I mean, look what he did on Obama. Busy talking about the, Obama's birth, and he knew all the facts that Obama was not a, an American. He was a, oh, you know what the story was. Is there an American president that you think did the most to change life for black people in this country, or can you not name someone in particular? Without a doubt, it was LBJ. Johnson is the only president that directed most of his his administration to try to right the wrongs that went uh, against black people all these years. Gwen, thanks so much for talking to me. Well, it's been my pleasure. I hope there's some enlightenment here. Gwen Scott is a Denver historian and co-author of Blacks Through the Eyes of Our American Presidents. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You'll probably hear one before you see it, though seeing the western meadowlark isn't necessarily hard to do, as they reside in much of Colorado year-round, and they like finding tall, open perches to call from. That could be a fence post in an open field, the top of a road sign along a rural highway, or even a high stalk of grass. Robin-sized, western meadowlarks are mottled white and brown on their upside, and breeding-age birds have brilliant, bright yellow undersides with a sharp V on the chest. The male of the western meadowlark may have more than one mate at a time, and though he helps with feeding nestlings, the female does most of that work, as his job will take him back to the fence post to attract another mate or ward off another suitor. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with the support of Coble Urban and Mountain Communities. Special live coverage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine will continue as new information comes in. Meantime, let's join my colleague Nathan Heffel for our next segment. The Shining is one of Stephen King's most enduring works. It tells the story of a writer who's struggling to finish a play, so he takes on the position of a caretaker to a haunted hotel, bringing his family deep into the Colorado Rockies. Come and play with us. Come and play with us, Daddy. Most of us are familiar with the iconic 1980 film starring Jack Nicholson. Well, now that spooky story is an opera, and Opera Colorado is bringing it to life. The Bible calls it visions, science recognition. She called it the shine. Mark Campbell is a librettist for the show. He's a CU Boulder grad. Mark, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. 
And Micah von Felt plays Danny Torrance in The Shining. He's a seventh grader at Mountain Ridge Middle School in Highland Ranch. Micah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Mark, let's start with you. Why The Shining and why as an opera? Um, well, first of all, I want to say that the, um, the opera is adapted from Stephen King's novel, um, not, you know, the, the Stanley Kubrick movie. And um, if you read the novel, it's pretty evident that it is great material for an opera. Uh, for one thing, it's a thriller, and nothing is better for a thriller than the abstract art form of music, because thrillers represent the unknown. And nothing does that better than music, I think. Um, and also, when you read the novel, you'll discover that the story is about a family, a family with a father who is just trying to do good. It's a very operatic story. And I encourage people who will be coming to Opera Colorado to, to, to see this performance to put away their ideas of the movie and focus on the opera itself. So when you read the novel to adapt the story for an opera, what struck you the most about the story? I think what struck me most about the story and the contrast between the novel and the movie is the fact that Stephen King has created a sympathetic portrayal of a family in a very difficult situation with a father who has has some serious issues related, one, to his alcoholism, and two, to his need to be a father. I think there is a, there's a story here about the dangers of patriarchy going too far. But unfortunately, he's made a, a very bad career choice by choosing to be a winter caretaker for a desolate place in Colorado. Mark, The Shining originally opened in 2016 with Minnesota Opera. How did it come to Colorado? Well, Opera Colorado is is really tremendous opera company that has a very strong reputation around the world. And I was there with an opera I wrote called As One. And I actually spoke to Greg Carpenter, who is the um, general director of Opera Colorado, and said, you might want to look at The Shining. I know it's a contemporary opera and audiences are often scared of contemporary opera. But this is an opera that I think will increase your audience because, first of all, it is set in Colorado, but it's also a known story. And it's told with such brilliant music that I think it will appeal to a larger audience. And so Opera Colorado uh, says yes to this. How has it been working with Opera Colorado and, and, and putting this production on here in, in uh, where the story takes place? You know, it's been great working with Opera Colorado because they're so meticulous about everything. I'm not even in rehearsal yet. I'm getting emails about questions about certain words that appear in the score that do not appear in the libretto. And so it's so obvious to me the care that they are taking in producing this opera and how important it is. It is the Minnesota Opera production, but it is now their production, and they're doing a tremendous job with it. And, you know, most people, when they hear opera, they immediately think something in Italian, something they might not understand. Do you think The Shining will make opera more accessible to people who might otherwise overlook it? Because it seems there are connections between the, tip, you know, quote unquote, opera and, and the book The Shining. The, the, they seem to have a lot of connections there. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, people still perceive opera as being a purely European art form that is sung in a foreign language. My colleagues and I are working... and. Companies like Opera Colorado are working very hard to change that perception. There are wonderful stories that we have in our own country that need to be told in opera, and I believe The Shining is one of them. 
Micah, how did you land the role of Danny Torrance? Well, my uncle found the audition somehow. I don't know. And then he told us about it. And so I was kind of drawn if I should do the audition or not. But then I found out my mom had already signed me up. Oh. So I went to the audition and I did my very best. And then I got the part. Were you familiar with the story of The Shining before you auditioned? Yes. I, I'd seen the movie. I have not read the book, though. Yeah. As I mentioned, you're in seventh grade. How did you get involved in opera at such a young age? I mean, that's not something that tends to, to be of interest to most kids. Really? It was just theater I'm really interested in. You know, as I said, then my uncle gave me the idea. And that's kind of why I was drawn, because it was an opera and a musical. But then I auditioned for it anyway, and I got the part. And so, yeah, I'm having a really fun time doing the opera and learning what it's all about. And it's very fun. How did you get involved in theater in the first place? Well, I guess I just was doing musicals and plays since I was really young. And, well, it first started out of I just wanted to be like, on the red carpet and in movies. And so I would watch that stuff with my mom. And then she started signing me up for plays and musicals. And then I really just fell in love with that. And I've done it ever since. I want to interject here because we, we have something in common. I also started that way at Thomas Jefferson High School in Denver. I had an interest in musical theater. And, and then I just sort of went to the dark side of opera later in my career. But we share, we have the, a common bond here. It's always good to encourage the arts in high school and performing arts and whenever we can. Mark, what was your first musical? I have to know. Uh, I love that you asked that question. It was Annie Get Your Gun. I played Little Jake. Oh, I love it. Micah, what about you? What, what was your first musical? Oh, my first musical, I believe, was Aladdin. Ooh, what, what character? Aladdin. Mark, what was it like uh, writing for a young character in, in an opera? It's actually kind of complicated because Danny is on stage with big opera singers. I mean, with big voices and with, with big performances. And you sort of have to minimize the role. Danny has to do a lot with, without singing and without speaking. But his presence, of course, in the story is so key to the importance of this story. Um, because Danny has what we know is the shining. He is he, he has ESP essentially. So it's a matter of just minimizing the role as much as possible so that his presence is still felt. I see. Now now Mark, you mentioned that of course this is based on the book, but there are moments in the film which are so ingrained in pop culture. I mean it's even been parodied on The Simpsons. Uh, what do you think, Mark? All I need is a title. I was thinking along the lines of no TV and no beer, make Homer something, something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! Did the Stanley Kubrick film have any influence on writing this production, or were you very um, determined to keep it based on the book? Very determined to keep it based on the book. I'm a huge fan of the Kubrick movie, but the Kubrick movie is not operatic. It does not present characters with particularly sympathetic 
situations. For example, you see Jack Nicholson in the first frame and you know he's going to murder his family. (laughs) Um, That's not operatic. We have to have sympathetic characters in opera. We have to give characters a reason to sing. And And the novel does that. The movie, of course, does not. And so for the people who are going to see this opera, I urge you to not think about uh, here's Johnny. That will not appear in the opera because it only appears in the screenplay, not the novel. And so um, let's talk a little bit about that connection between opera and the book. Um, is there an example of an opera that people may know that they can relate to to The Shining uh, opera? I think that it will. I think The Shining will have a very comfortable place in future repertory because it is an ancestor of um, stories like Traviata and Boheme and Aida and Tosca in that there are larger-than-life characters who are given a reason to sing. That's the only common thread. I do think this might be one of the very first, like, thriller operas. I mean, Sweeney Todd is a thriller opera, but it's also a Broadway show. This is a grand opera, so I think that it might be a first on that level. What are some of the challenges in adapting a 600-page Stephen King novel for the stage? Well, you start with what what is necessary in the story. What do I absolutely need in this story to go from point to take the audience from point A to point B? Um, and then you kind of push aside the rest. And then also you have to be aware that this is a musical form. So what sings? What sings? What 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 in the text of of these characters has heart and emotion? And then finally, what is stage worthy? There were several things in the in the novel. For example, there's topiary that come alive. Well, I was aware of the budget for this opera, and I knew we couldn't have animated topiary. And also, it works in a novel, but on stage, it might look kind of comical. So those are those are some of the considerations. Now, in terms of the look of the opera, or the stage directions, or the costumes, how do they fit into all of this? Well. I have to see something as much as I have to listen to it, but I can only do that so much because we, in this case, we have a brilliant director, Eric Simonson. Audiences in Colorado will be seeing the original production from Minnesota Opera that was directed by Eric Simonson and produced by Minnesota Opera. And it's his vision as much as mine, as much as the stage director, as much as the set designer and the projectionist. So I have to have a vision, but that vision can only go so far because it's going to be filled in by the really amazing colleagues that I get to work with. Micah, I, I want to bring you back into this conversation. How is this production experience different from other theater experiences you've had? Like Mark said, this is a grand opera. There's a lot going on. How is it for you to be on stage every night? It's awesome because Denny's on stage so much. And a lot of the time he's not singing or he's not saying a line. So I just love listening to the singers and hearing them because they're just so musically talented. And this is much like of a bigger performance than I've ever done. It's awesome to see how like the professionals do it. Is this your first time in a professional production? Yeah. What What is your uh, your family, stage family like? How How is that relationship and working with, again, like you said, some very powerful operatic singers? So far, it's really great. My mom, especially in the show, she's like very loving, even to like me in real life. And she's an amazing actor. So like the second I walked in the door and like the first scene we we staged, she was just like, 
always like holding me right from the very first moment. It was like we were an actual family. And my dad, he is very loving as well. And just like Mark said, he's a kind of normal dad. He has some issues, but we're a loving family. Yeah. And Mark, operatically, how do you bring that love from the dad into something so dark as the production continues and you move through this opera where the dad, he gets kind of crazy. <laughs> kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it was there in the original novel. Stephen King put that into the story. But you see, in opera, I'm very lucky in that I get to work with a composer like Paul Moravec. Sometimes my words just need to back away so that the music can show the love and the horror in this story. And when you get to work with a composer like Paul, it's it makes my job so much easier. And when you get to work with performers like Kelly Caduce and Ed Parks Jr., who play Danny's parents, it's like, I don't have anything to worry about. I just get the story out there and then let others take over and, and work their brilliant magic with it. Mark, do you know if Stephen King has seen this? He has not. Not that I know of, unless he snuck in at a performance in Minnesota opera. <laughs> um, but he does approve of the work. And as you may know, he's had a kind of a troubled history with it because he did not like the Kubrick movie, which I understand because it's not his story. But he apparently is very happy with this opera. Micah, final question for you. Do you think being in this opera, would you like to be in more in the future if you could? Yes. Yay. That's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely awesome seeing all these talented people and all the work that goes into pr the production. So, yeah, I would definitely like to do more of this in the future. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate you both taking the time to join us. Thanks so much. Of course. Thank you. Mark Campbell is the librettist for The Shining. Micah Von Felt plays Danny Torrance. They spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel.